0: So we're going to learn today the fourth Sicha of this week's Parsha Shmos, printed in the Lakuta Sichos, volume 16. So in the fourth Sicha here today, the Rebbe is going to discuss a very interesting nuance that's learned from one of the words in today's Parsha. And from there, we're going to be able to learn one of the most unbelievable, powerful, and important lessons for our day-to-day conducting of our lives. So we're dealing with the Jews are now in Egypt, and Pharaoh is putting Jews under in slavery, and we're working very hard, and we're screaming to God because of the suffering that we're going through. God appears himself in the, uh, what we know in as, as the burning bush. He tells Moshe to be the one to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moshe says, hey, I have a lisp. I can't talk so clear. You think the king will listen to me? Hashem says, take your brother Aaron. He will translate and give over the words that you say. And they go together to, I'm shortening up the whole parsha, but to get to the part, to the part where the Sikha begins. And they go together. To see Pharaoh. And here. And they tell him. Let my people go. They have to go to serve God. They have to go into the desert. They're basically going for a holiday. And let them go. So the sicha begins here. On the verse. That says. Melech mitzrayim. The king of Egypt. Said to them. Lama. Moshe. Va'aron why is Moshe and Aaron distracting the nation from doing their work? In other words, the Jews are in their labor camps in Egypt. And you're telling me that I should stop the production of their labor and I should let them out of Egypt, says Pharaoh. Why? Are you distracting them? Why are you telling them to stop working and you're leaving and you're telling me to let them go? Why are you doing this? And here's the key words. Pharaoh says, go to your own burdens. Go to your own work. Why are you telling Everybody, to stop working, and you're distracting everybody from working. Right? People can't work well in our country to build our economy in Egypt. While you're telling them that they're going to leave, you're telling me that I should let them go. <coughs> What's going on over here? That you're getting mixing in to the politics of our government, and he's, that's what he's telling him. Lama, why is Moshe and Aaron tafriu distracting them? Disturbing the the nation from their action. Go, you motion arm, go to go to your own burdens, your own work. Now, when you think about this verse, let's repeat this verse one more time so we'll really digest it because the key here is in the end of the verse, but let's appreciate the verse and then the rest of it will flow. So again, Pharaoh tells back to Moshe and Aaron and he says, And the king of Egypt says to them, Why is Moshe and Aaron is distracting or disturbing the the nation from their work? Please get out of here. Go to your own burdens, to your own work. Now, it seems a little bit strange if you think about these words that Pharaoh is saying. He I get the first sentence. Why is Moshe and Aaron disturbing everybody, distracting everybody from from work? But what does he mean when he says, Go to your work, to your own burdens, Go, go to your thing? What? Moshe and Aaron's work is any different than the rest of the Jews? They're also Jewish. What does he mean to say, go to your Moshe and Aaron? Go to what you usually do, to your occupation, your work, your burdens. What's what's different of Moshe and Aaron and everybody else? So we need to have the commentaries to help us out to understand what's happening here. What are these two words? There's obviously no extra words or verb at all anywhere in the Torah. So what does it mean? Go to your works, your burdens. So the sages teach us, he brings down from several uh, commentaries and Rashi also said, brings this down a slightly different way that I'll mention soon. And he said, the sages teach us like this. Since Pharaoh added the words, go to your own burdens, your own responsibilities, your own work. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say, in general, a general term, go to work. He says, "Go to your work." Le sechem, your work. Doesn't say sivlo sum to the work. That would, if he would say the work, it would sound like as if Moshe and Aaron go to, you know, go to the production place, go to the place where people are Jews are working. But when he says go to your work, it sounds quite clear that they have a different job. Than the rest of the Jews. So the sages learned from here to teach us, the Torah is telling us how it was in Egypt that when it says go to your work, it means not the same kind of work, which was the back breaking labor that the rest of the Jews had. That's not what Pharaoh was saying. What he was saying is, go back to the work that you're, that's your work. What's your work? Ah, so the sages teach us, from here you see, that the tribe, remember, we have 12 tribes amongst Israel, right, amongst the Jews. Moshe and his brother Aaron, they came from their great-grandfather was Levi. Now the tribe of the Levies, the Levites, they were not subject to, to labor in Egypt. They didn't have to work. So when, he, when Pharaoh says, go to your work, yes, your work is not the same work of everybody else. Everybody else is working in my labor camp, but you guys go to your work. Why is the Torah telling us this, what Pharaoh said? Because it's precise, because they did not work like everybody else. They were singled out differently. That's why it says your work, not go back to their work or to the work. Now, why is it that Moshe and Aaron and the entire tribe of Levi did not work? Why were they not subjugated? Why did Pharaoh allow this, that that most people had to work except for one tribe, the Levites? So for this, we find a Ramban. Ramban with a, a nun at the end, an n, not the Rambam. The Ramban, the Nachmanides. He explains on this verse. He says, "Look, there is a custom amongst all nations of the world that everybody, every nation, has wise, scholarly people that set the moral standards for your country. Every country," he says. Every nation has people that are the, studi- the, stu- the studying people. They're the studious people. They study, you know, the morals. They study the, the, all the values of the people. Right? So not everybody is out in the field doing the physical labor. Everybody has wise people, chachamim, wise people, that they give the instructions to the people. And therefore... Pharaoh chose the tribe of Levi and he freed them from the physical labor because he also wanted to have the wise and elderly people of the Jews. It's not necessarily to teach Torah, but it's to teach them, you know, ways of life. Otherwise, it would be a jungle, right? So he's teaching them to the ways of life. And that's what Pharaoh meant when he said, go to your works. What does it mean? He means the work of learning, being the teachers of the Jews. That's your job. That means, so let's explain this in more words. The Rebbe elaborates what does it mean it was their job. Pharaoh complained to Moshe and Aaron. Now we're gonna, a little bit more understanding of what Pharaoh was actually saying. He was saying to Moshe and Aaron, he was arguing with them, saying it's not enough that you are freed from the labor of Egypt and you're able to study Torah and you're even able to study Torah and teach Jews whatever Torah was out in those days that we had. We had a lot of wisdom of God that was already revealed and being studied. So that's your job to do that. So not just that I already freed you from the labor and I allowed you to study Torah and to teach Torah to Jews, But you also have to come and mix in to the way I run my government, my economics, my business plan for our country from the rest of the Jews. You're trying to say that they should all stop working. It's enough that I allow you to learn Torah and I give you time for that. So why are you mixing in to the way I'm running my country? So this is now the completion of the understanding of this verse. Pharaoh says to them, why is Moshe and Aaron distracting everybody from work? Go do your work, your work, stay, keep your head in the books. Do your teachings, teach the people from time to time, whatever you're teaching them. And that's it. Don't mix in, don't tell me to tell them to stop working. And they should leave and go bring offerings to God. Later in the Parsha, Pharaoh says, I don't even know who this God is that you're talking about. Like, you know, what's this whole craziness going on here, you know? But that, that's the conversation here. So from here, we learned this whole idea that they did not work in terms of the same work. They had a different thing they were able to study. Now, we take this now, this idea, and we go a little further to understand the psychology and the way the thinking was of Pharaoh. And who was this Pharaoh person really? Who were the people in Egypt? What was their their way of thinking? How did they come up with policies? Who were these people? So the Rebbe quotes from the Zohar. In the Zohar, it says that the Egyptian people were very wise. As a matter of fact, It says they were wiser than the rest of the world. People from other nations, from the rest. Anybody else that lived anywhere else in the world. This was the smartest people. This is where they lived. And then the Zohar says even more. He says Pharaoh himself was a Chacham Gadol. He was a great wise man. And therefore... When you think of it like this, that the Egyptian people were smart people, Pharaoh was a smart person, now we actually could start understanding intellectually, what was Pharaoh's argument with Moshe and Aaron? They're saying our people are working too hard, you got to let them go. God told me I had to tell you, you better let them go, right? If not, watch out, you know, plagues are coming. So Pharaoh, what was his argument? His argument was, as a wise person, he said, I have an argument, a logical argument, Why you should not be mixing in the way I run my country. Now, we're going to get to his logic in a moment. Another point we have to realize about Egypt. Yes, they were wise people, the wisest of the world. Pharaoh was a wise man, a a very great wise person. In addition to these points, we also have to remember the slavery in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt was so bad that the sages teach us, and Rashi quotes this also, that no slave in Egypt was ever able to escape. Not one person was able to escape the slavery in Egypt. That's how tight of a grip they had on us. Don't think, ah, oh, the Levites, they were learning Torah. So everybody came and said, oh, I'm a Levite, let me learn, you know? Not, not like that. Nobody was able to escape. It was really tight. And more than that, Pharaoh obviously was also quite knowledgeable about these Jewish people. That's part of the reason why he made this whole craziness in his head why he was so scared because he said that the jews they're into big families, they're going to multiply and be such a big nation they're going to take me over you know but he got he made he made up his fears because he figured we'll have a lot of people, but he also understood. That God, he knew about this, that God had already instructed a decree that Jews are going to have to be in Egypt for 400 years. If you go back in the Chumash to Parsha Lech Lecha, the third Parsha in the Torah, over there, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And we're just in, in short, what it says there is that Abraham... Hashem told them that I'm going to bring you to this promised land, and I make a vow I'm going to give it to you, your descendants, and you, your for your inheritance for all the future of time. But first, they're going to wander. They're going to have to wander around and be under other nations, under rulerships. And four hundred years is the amount of time that it's going to be for this. Wandering around being under rulership, dictatorship, and all kinds of suffering under other nations. And then you're going to get this reward of the land of Israel. Now, Pharaoh knew about this. Remember, he was a wise man. These people were wise. So they knew, they knew the, they they knew the real good information. So they knew that Hashem had made a decree that Jews are going to have to be there. Now, now we can understand of what Pharaoh was actually complaining to Moshe and Aaron. They're coming to him and saying that we want you to let these people go. So Pharaoh says back, who are you or how are you able to go and change the nature and mix into the way God runs things? That was Pharaoh's argument. Pharaoh says, who are you to mix into God's plan? God already had established that the Jews are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Why are you mixing in? Now, the Rebbe, by the way, in this talk, he brings, there's a footnote here that he t- takes us to a tractate in Baba Basra, one of the volumes in the Talmud, and he brings there a similar argument that was brought down hundreds of years later. In, in, in brought down in the Talmud of the argument of a very well known wicked wicked man, a big Russia. His name was Turnes Rupus, a Russia. He argued with the say Jewish sages, and one of his arguments that he said is that we should not allow anybody to give charity. Why? He said if God made that somebody should be poor. He obviously loves everybody. So he wanted this person to be poor. Who are you to mix into God's way of doing things by giving that person money and making him not poor anymore? Now, when you go with a logical argument, right? you may say, well, there's logic to that argument. If, you're, if one guy's rich and the next guy's poor, obviously Hashem wanted it to be like that. Why should Reuben give Shimon anything? Now, the sages in the Talmud, of course, bring the answer and they say that God made it on purpose like that in order for there to be kindness in the world. If everybody would have everything, you would, there would be nobody to be receiving anything, so you wouldn't be able to do a kind deed. That's why Hashem did it like that. But this argument is the same argument of what Pharaoh was saying, same idea. He's saying, why are you mixing in to the way Hashem made things? If Hashem made it by divine providence that it should be that you guys, the Jews, should be under my rulership. In my country, they're going to be slaves for so many years. Mix out. Go and do your work. Go and learn your daily Torah class. Go on your Zoom, Moshe and Aaron. Go do your thing. Go study. I allowed you to do that. And let the Jews, the rest of the Jews, do what's expected from them. to Do their daily work, their quotas, whatever they have to do, let them work. Now, how do, you, how do you answer that? Pharaoh seems right. He has a very good argument. Hashem said it like this. He said there's going to be a slavery. He said all this 400 years. So we answer that even though it seems like, seemingly, that Pharaoh has a very good logical argument But you have to remember, whose argument is this? (laughs) It's Pharaoh's argument. Who's saying this logic? It's Pharaoh's logic. If we were to accept the logic of Pharaoh and his argument, then God forbid, we would have lost the entire opportunity of being redeemed from Egypt. And as it's well known, it says regarding the redemption of Egypt that when we did end up leaving, you know how we left? It's brought down in the Siddur of the Arizal and in many other books that we left B'chipazon in a major haste. We rushed out. We didn't just walk out calmly. All right, time to go. We're being freed. no. When we heard we were able to leave, we flooded those gates out of there. We ran as fast as we can. Why did we have to leave so fast? So it's explained, and Hasidus explains this in many places based on some Kabbalistic ideas, that if we would have waited one more moment in the slavery and exile of Egypt, Even if we would have waited, this is the expression that it's brought down in the in the Mechilta and other places. That if we would have waited there, the amount of time that it takes to wink an eye—in other words, a split second, even more like that—difference, we would have not been able to leave and have the redemption of Egypt. It was only because we didn't listen to Pharaoh's way of thinking of his logical arguments that we were able to have the redemption. Now in in Hasidus it brings down, Alter Eber brings in the Tanya and brought down from the Zoya and other places that there's an impurity, there are 50 steps of sinking in impure levels. So it says that the Jews in Egypt living there, we ended up being there only 210 years. You're soon going to see about that. Out of 400, God was kind to us he got us out of 210. We were sinking in our environment around us. You know, it's hard to be, you know, in Egypt and not become Egyptianized. So we were becoming sunk into that. And we sunk so steep to the 49th level. 49 is the numerical value of the word chayla, sick. We were becoming in a very deep, steep, stoop, steep place that we were, if we would have hit the 50th level of impurity, we would have been doomed. We would have not been able to get out of that. So when it says that we rushed out, because the moment we were able to leave, we had to rush not to sink that little bit more. It could have been just that one blink of an eye, extra second that could have made us sink that little bit more, we would have not been able to get out. So that means, is it true that there's a logical argument that Pharaoh said? Yes. We're not arguing That he didn't have a logical argument. We're agreeing that he had a logical argument. The only difference is, is that Jews know that we are not bound to logic. We're not bound to limitations of where our intellect could reach. And boom, that's it. If I can't understand something, I'm out. That's not the way it works. We have to work hard to understand and understand deep and deep. We're not subject to the limitations of where logic could reach to. And therefore, even though there was a decree for 400 years to be in exile, the redemption came much, much sooner. In a way that it says we jumped over the ketz. Ketz in Hebrew is kuf, final tzaddik. Jumping over the Ketz means, cats means it's the end. This is the end time, you know? That's it, Mashiach's coming, you know? So in Egypt, we had an end date. We knew 400 years, at least is gonna be an end, 400 years. But Hashem jumped over the Ketz. And actually, somebody pointed out to, to me that it's brought down in some sfarim, that Ketz has a numerical value of 190. That Hashem... Took us out 190 years before the 400th year. We were only in Egypt for 210 years. I mean, only—that's a long time—but we were there for 210 years. From when Jacob came down with his family, he told his family in the last few weeks departure. They went down to Yosef to help them. So he said, "Redu, we're going to go down into Egypt. We're going to descend." But the word redo has a numerical value of Reish Dalad Vav is 200 plus 4 plus 6 is 210. We were descended into Egypt just for 210 years. Hashem took us out, Ketz, 190 years earlier. But again, how do you leave earlier? If logic dictates you're going to be there for 400 years, that was the decree. That's what Hashem said. So so it has to be, ah. That's only, Pharaoh is the one that gives that argument. We don't say that argument. We say we're connected to Hashem. We have unlimited powers and connections. Things could change, especially for the better. Now, so this is the the Chumash, understanding the Chumash. But as we all know, and the Rebbe taught us hundreds of times already that the word Torah means lesson and so on. So there has to be a lesson from this. What's the possible lesson for all of us? Moshe goes in with Aaron to Pharaoh, says to Lee, Pharaoh says, No, come on, guys, stop disturbing everybody. Go back to your work, go learn Torah, and stop disturbing here. Pharaoh comes up with this whole logical thing why we should be there. We say, Hey, wait, wait, we don't have time for logic. We got to get out of here. Moshe and Aaron say, Our job is to help the people. That's our job. We're here to help. Yeah, I could go back and learn Torah. No problem. Learning Torah is so beautiful. It's, it's the best thing a person can do, right? It's, it's so enjoyable. So the says, here you see an amazing lesson. A Jew is not allowed to think. I'm going to learn Torah. As the saying goes, I'm in good shape. I saved my soul. I'm in good shape, I'm a spiritual guy, I'm doing my daily Chayenu, my daily you know Torah study, I'm okay. Especially if you're a person that from time to time is even giving a Torah class to others. That's what he brings down here. Why do is would it be so important to me to see and go look how another Jew is doing? I'm a great guy, I'm learning Torah, you could say to yourself. I have to go look to see if another Jew is doing a mitzvah or, God forbid, not doing a mitzvah. Is he devoting this other person, devoting their energy to God? Or, God forbid, their energy to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? Meaning, on material stuff? Because that's what all the Pharaoh wanted. The brings down, you remember, in the beginning of today's Parsha, it said that part of the slavery was that Jews had to be build the cities of Pisum and Ramses. What are those cities, Pisum and Ramses? What, what, are, what kind of cities are they? We, know, you know, we don't know much about them. But the way to know about them is when you check the Talmud. The Talmud tells you about the names of these cities. And the Talmud says that these cities of Pharaoh were, very, were you, precisely, it's hinted all in the name of the cities. And the Talmud says that Pisum and Ramses. There was an argument amongst the sages. Some say the city was called Pisum, but they called it Ramses. Some people it was the city's name was Ramses, but they called it Pisum. What's the argument? So the Talmud says, that, of course, there's, there's logic to this. The one who says that really it's Pisum, well, we call it Ramses. He says, you know why? Because Ramses means something that crumbles. Something that crumbles up. Pharaoh had materials to build, but right after you finished building, it crumbled up. The next day, the Jews had to go out and build the same thing that they built yesterday, and it would crumble again. The next day, you would go out, build it again, and it crumbled up again. Now, that's called back-breaking labor. To do something that you see zero benefit is the worst thing you could do. Everybody knows this, right? You could do something that you don't like doing, that's one thing. If you see a benefit, you can get through it. But something where you see zero benefit, that's the worst. And that's what he had them do. The other opinion says, nah. <laughs> different, a whole different story. It really, the city was called Ramses. But why did they call it Pisom? That's why it's called pisom and Ramses. They called it pisom because pisom is from the word pi-tohom. Which means, tohoyim means like an empty pit almost. And it had a wide opening. Everything that they built would sink like in a quicksand. It would just sink into the ground. I guess you could say it's a similar idea. Just, it's a technical way where you look at it. But the point is that... When a person devotes their life to the ways of Pharaoh's thinking, life is all about logic. I'm going to build something because I see a material thing in this. Well, you know what? That's what Pharaoh was building. That was Pharaoh's style. It was all about something material. He didn't care about anything else. So there's a major difference in how you look at something. Do you look at something that's all about the material substance? Or do you look at it that there's a spiritual thing that lies deep in it? Right? Do you buy a house so you can own bricks? Or do you buy a house to make it into a home? To live into it? It's not about the bricks, right? It's about the spirit that's in there. It's about the spirituality there. So therefore, continues the Rebbe, we have to know that this was the outlook of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. When he said, go to your work, he said, for you, it's enough to go learn Torah. Why do you need anything else, Moshe and Aaron? Go learn. Why do you care about the rest of the way the people are conducting their lives? So what, they're working hard. But the answer is that that's not the way it's supposed to be for a Jew. And therefore, Moshe and Aaron did not accept Pharaoh's argument. Now, the Rebbe goes, and by the way, this talk was said at a Fabringen in a sukkah. The Rebbe said this whole talk, sukkah. So you can imagine it was special excitement for in a in 1957. And the Rebbe brings down a example that's something that we could all easily repeat it to ourselves and to others. He says like this, when, when you would see, if you would see, God forbid, a fire in a Jewish house, for that matter, any house, if you see a, a, a house burning, nobody's going to sit down and say, let's have a meeting of how we should put this fire out. That's not the way it works. Should I do something to save the people in there? Maybe somebody else could save the people in there. That's not, that's not what you do. You stop making calculations right away. You're not going to start saying, "So, well, should I mix in? Am I allowed to mix in? That's not what happened. When you see a fire, every person that has some sense of, of orders of life will know that this is divine orchestra, that I should be right there. right? Well, are you going to go say, I should go mix into Hashem's ways? If there's supposed to be a fire here, let the fire burn. It's obvious that every person that would see such a thing would not sit down to make all kinds of calculations. Is it? Does it make sense according to my opinion, or doesn't make sense in my opinion? You're going to go right away to try to save the other people there. Now, if this is the case, by saving a person's life in material sense of things, a physical per person that could be burning, you know, in danger in a burnt burning house. How much more so many times over is it when it comes to the importance of saving a person from the world to come, from the spiritual world? And especially when it's talking about the physical material worlds of life and the spiritual world mixed in there together. There's no time to make any kind of calculations that we have to save every person from the lowest the lowest of nethermost lowest to pull people out. Now, I want to share with you a small footnote here. The Rebbe brings from Parsha Kitetze, a very interesting uh, uh, Rashi, but just to appreciate where you could see, even in the, Torah's, in the Torah as a law, the difference of how we treat Somebody that kills a Jew to the difference the way somebody that forces a Jew to do sins. Very interesting. In Parsha say there it says that there were certain nations that there's a commandment not to cut them off from the Jewish people forever. In other words, some nations of the world, if they want to re- re- repent and they want to convert and become a Jew... You take them in. I, their father, the Zayda, the Baba, whatever, you know, going back generations, you know, could have been very ruthless to Jews. For example, the Egyptians themselves. It says they took our babies, they murdered them, and stuffed them into the walls to fill up empty space, gaps in the walls. They murdered our children. Nevertheless, the Torah says that three generations after the Egyptians that lived at the time of Egypt, you're allowed, if somebody converts, comes a Jew, you're allowed to marry, you're allowed, they're allowed to come into the Jewish fold. Very interesting law, where it's not a punishment on the Egyptians forever, right? You know how you say, it's not the same Egyptians, you know, it's okay, a few generations back, but it's possible somebody could have a grandchild that's, you know, or a great grandchild, three full generations, you know, that repents and understands the values, and, you know, could be a genuine person. But, that's the Egyptians and there's another nation there. Rashu brings there. But the Amon and Moab, it says, they were looking for ways to get the Jews to sin against Gog. They tried to get us to promiscuous behaviors and idol worships and all kinds of stuff. Those people, Hashem says, you can never take them into our people. Even if they convert, you can't marry them. But So if you think about it, you see that that if they take our soul, it's worse than just them taking our body. I mean, Hashem takes revenge, of course, if they take the body too. But just pointing out that the spiritual component is the everlasting world. The physical component is this world that's subject to limitations. That's that's the key point here. Now, let's continue. He brings down from his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, said once in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov said that the obligation of loving your fellow Jew, Avas Yisrael, is not just a commandment to love a Jew who you know well. And you know him, you're, you're, you know, you're familiar with this person. So now, I, I, yeah, the commandment is you have to love him. The commandment to love a Jew needs to be even to a person that lives on the other side of the world. Because you may think, a guy that's living in my city, a guy that Davins in my shul, a woman that daven's in my shul, I have to be nice to them. I see them all the time, so, you know, we shouldn't be uh, at odds. But you may think, a guy, a person I never see, they come to town once in a year, once in five years, who cares, I don't have to like them. Belshanta says, no, you must like them, that mitzvah of Yisrael, even for a person you don't know well. Now, this level of ava, of love, has to be not just The word hafta you have to love. It says you have to love kamocha. Love your fellow as you love yourself. How much do we all love ourselves? (laughs) Unlimited. There's no... Limit how much you love yourself. We all know how we justify every single thing we do and eat, you know, and so on, right? Because we love ourselves. It's because I'm not feeling well, I'm down, whatever. You know, we all, we find the reasons, you know. Because we love yourself, we all love ourselves with no end. That's the point of obviously Yisrael. Love your fellow without limitations. And not just the people you love, that you know, even the people you don't know. And now, he brings down that the previous Rebbe once said that the Mazritcha Magid the Maggid of Mesrich who was the, the disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, he was the next Rebbe after the Baal Shem Tov, he once said about himself, he says, I wish, Halavai, he said, that when I go and I kiss a Torah, and I go to kiss a Torah, I should do it with the same love and affection that my Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov, had for a Jew. That's how I wish I could, Touch a Torah scroll with the amount of affection and love that he had for a Jew, and then the Rebbe added in the name of the Maggid that the Maggid once said that if the Tov would have only known while he was still here in this world, if he would have only, if he would have known, now he's in the higher worlds. Of course, he knows this, but if he would have known. This point that while he was still here in this world, that by being kind and loving another person, he would have done it even in greater measures. Imagine that kind of statement the Mo should say this on the volv Vasheev was known for his love to another person, but he said if he would only have known the extent of loving another yid of how far that could go, he would have Baal Shem would have done it even in greater measures, I and mean, that's. Wild to say. Now, loving your fellow Jew, needs to express itself. That just like you yourself, you love yourself to no end. And you have the instructions that Pharaoh said, go back to work. Go study Torah. Sit all day and study. Come on, I gave you that job. You're from the tribe of Levi. Every tri- like the Ramban put it, every country needs their own you know, teachers. Go study. And you may feel like you're in the 10th of Torah and the 10th of prayer and doing mitzvahs. To that's the extent that we actually have to go now and affect with the same conviction that we have to go affect another person to the same level. And now we have a rule. The Talmud says in Avodah Zarah, it says there, that Ein very well-known statement that Hashem does not load us up and ask us to do things that we cannot handle to do. So it is certain that means that Hashem gives us all the necessary tools, patience, everything to actually follow through with this kind of love to help out and see how another person is doing. We only have to know, says the Rebbe, one rule. (laughs) If you know this one rule, you could do it all out. The rule is, don't postpone it. Don't say, I love that person. I'll check up on him next week. Don't say, I'll check on him in a day or even the blink of an eye of time soon. That's the key to this thing. Caring about another person has to be now. That's that's the key that we learn from this story. Pharaoh says, go back and learn. You'll deal with these people. Sorry another time. Moshe and Aaron say, no. Our job is to care about the people. It's very nice to be spiritual and do all that stuff. But we have to care about another friend, another person. Why is it so important? Why can't I push it off? Says the Rebbe. Because it's possible. As we said earlier. That if the Jews would have stayed and postponed their exit of Egypt even one moment, the blink of an eye of a moment, they could have been, God forbid, we could have still been in exile. And we would have missed the opportunity, could have missed that train to leave Egypt. You could have missed that boat that that was it, you would never get out again. So imagine these opportunities to try to be nice to another person, care about another person, even though you're in a good spiritual space, which is great. But imagine you could miss an opportunity, you could lose a person. That one minute different, you could just lose a person. And this he concludes, is, the, is this amazing lesson that's relevant to everybody, people that learn Torah, people that are in yeshivas, and anybody that's out for the cause of bringing light into this world. While you see another person that's spiritually not in a good place, It's not enough just to make more light where you are. Don't convince yourself and say, I'm good. I'm religious. I do my daily Torah thing. I do my thing. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's about we're one entity of a people. So when it's missing Torah amidst by a second person, it means that we are missing it too. Now, to understand this, he quotes one more idea. The Torah says regarding Jews, in the parsha of Nitzavim, it says the end of the Chumash Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kulchem. He says you should stand, all of you, should be stand up in front of God and then Moses goes and he lists out 15 categories of people he says the Racheichem the heads of the Shivtechem the heads of the tribes and he goes on and on and then he goes till the woodchoppers and the water carriers. Everybody amongst the Jews, every category. The heads, the scholars, heads means the scholars, the brain people, right? All the way down to the physical labor people, right? Today you'd probably say the shoemaker, you know? Then they call them the, 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 the woodchopper, the water carrier. When you put everybody, there's another material example that ever brings down here when you stand out and you make an army you take a bunch of soldiers for a parade in front of a king the order is and the way it works is that if one person one simple soldier is not perfectly in his position with his beautiful uniform on him and if he has dirty buttons on him, even on his jacket. Who does the king complain to? Does he tell this foot soldier? Ah, chutzpah, you look dirty. Your jacket's not perfect. Your buttons are this. No. Who does the king go to? Mainly, not only to the soldier, but mainly he screams at the generals. The people that are in charge. Why didn't you make sure your soldiers are in perfect condition and standing right and clean and you know the way a soldier should look? So what do you see from this? That when everybody has to stand in front of Hashem, who do we who does Hashem complain to if they're not good? Even if the water carrier, the shoe, the the the, the, the wood chopper, the water carrier, who's to complain to? Not just to them. The complaint is to the leaders, to the to the people that are. You know, from the beginning of the list. And you won't be able to answer to the king, I'm sorry king, you know, I'm busy with my responsibilities. No, this is your responsibility. And when it's like this, that the Jews will act in this way, that we'll see ourselves the way it truly is, a one big entity, one, uni- one unified entity that all the Jews together from the heads of the tribes all the way down to the woodchoppers and the water carriers. Then we will have the words that we say in our prayers on the high holidays. We will be all like one bundle, like of wheat, but one bundle together. We're one group, all tied together. And then we will merit to Serve Hashem and do the desires of what Hashem asks from us with a complete heart, and then it's going to be Hashem Echad, Ushmo Echad. The oneness of Hashem's name will be known, and His name, His oneness of His name will be known, and we will all be unified in this kind of way. And this is that this Sikha that we learn this whole interesting thing here from Moshe. So to recap. And Pharaoh says, go do your work. From here we learned their work was different than everybody else's work. Their work was to learn Torah. But Moshe and Aaron taught us, Pharaoh, you may be right with all your calculations, but we don't follow the worldly views. We have our own calendar. We have our own radio. We have our own way of doing things. Our way is we rely on Hashem and we could do things faster and better. And we don't have to listen to your way of thinking And that means to all of us to learn from this, that we don't think about ourselves, but we go out and we look how we can help to all others around us, wherever they are, and lift up people and brighten them and care for them to no end.